This is the Shifting Perceptions Podcast. Hi there, I'm Abira. Hi, I'm Cherry. Hi, I'm Debbie. Hi, I'm Sabrina. We're creating a platform where conversations about substance use can happen. Hi, my name is Abira, and this is the second episode of our podcast series. I'm here with Tim, the Executive Director of the AIDS Network. Hi, Tim. Hello. (laughs) So just to get started, uh, we're going to have a bit of a conversation around some of the harm reduction being work work being done by your organization um, in the context, especially, of the opioid crisis. So um, the AIDS Network uh, actually serves more than Hamilton. and mm-hmm. We're based in Hamilton, but we serve the region around us, and that includes the region of Halton and the counties of Haldeman, Norfolk, and Brand. So that's about a population of 1.5 million people. So our primary you know, is, is prevention and um, harm reduction and support. So that is along the spectrum of people who might need services. So that could be people who are at risk of HIV or hepatitis C, or people that are currently living. With that, with that, with HIV and hepatitis C, so our programs run across that kind of mm-hmm. kind of spectrum, and um, we've been providing that support for thirty two years now, since nineteen eighty six. Wow. So in the early times of our, our organization, it was more focused on people with HIV and, and AIDS who were very uh, ill and dying, basically of AIDS. But things changed dramatically in nineteen ninety six when the treatment came through. Um, that's currently. Uh, what is based on the, for the treatment now that people mm-hmm. use. And in the last few years, as, as people with HIV are getting, um, they're living longer now, they're getting more involved in programming and uh, living their lives, they're going on with their lives. Our shift in programming has been over to more the prevention side and harm reduction. So that's where we've been in the last few years. We still provide the support programs for people, mm-hmm. but a lot of our um, attention has been shifted over to the mm-hmm. prevention side uh, more than it used to be. And we've always focused on priority populations within uh, that group who are at high risk for HIV or Hep C. But um, obviously with harm reduction, we are tar- looking at the population of people who use substances. And so in the last four or five years, as the opioid crisis is, has um, emerged, we now see more people coming to use our harm reduction services. So those include an on-site needle exchange and other um, supplies for people who use substances. And then a, a daily, weekly, um, night, nightly, <laughs> to be more specific, uh, van distribution program that just covers the city of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And um, we have now expanded our programming thanks to support from uh, the provincial government um, to have a couple of more staff and to expand our, our actual physical space to include programming now for people who are uh, using those services and that includes things like a twice weekly uh, drop-in group where they come in and help us put together the harm reduction kits that we use on the van and other other needle exchange distribution sites so that's now allowed us to expand our program we now work um, closer with people who are using substances not just coming in to get the supplies and leaving but to come in and, and have a space where they can be together with each other and learn from peers, but also work with our, our workers and look at some uh, options they may want to start pursuing. If it's, it could be housing, could be just uh, safe, more safer use practices, or it could be a contemplation that it's time maybe to look at a treatment option. So all those things can be now uh, even better focused on because of the, the, the extra 
features and resources we have. Amazing. Um, thank you for all the great work that your organization is doing. Just as a actually a very quick follow-up to something you just said is the engagement you're now doing with people who use these substances. So could you speak to how people who use substances are at the center almost at, of your work or in what ways are you trying to make them the center of your work and perhaps that's different from you know what harm reduction has traditionally done in the past. Well, within our organization itself, we've always been centered on people who are uh, living with, with HIV and affected or at risk. So uh, many of the people uh, at, our, at all levels of our organization, on the board, directors or volunteers or staff, are people either living with, affected by, um, um, who have, you know, have a lived some, some form of lived experience. So that now is, is moved further into the programming with harm reduction. And so we have... Uh, people coming in, uh, getting some training as peers, and then they can work with others mm -hmm. uh, to help be advocates for them. And we will mm -hmm. uh, put them in sort of in place uh, so mm -hmm. we pay them and, yes. and pay them uh, a, a, a decent wage mm -hmm. uh, for the work they're doing and um, look at ways of supporting them while they're, while they're in that, that journey uh, to become peer workers. And, um, and we, we, so the, the whole philosophy of harm reduction is meeting people where they're at. So we're not, we're basically listening to them all the time mm -hmm. about where they where they want to go. Um, we can well offer options, but sometimes the options don't work, and then we have to look at something else, or we just just to continue to support them on whatever that journey is. And it's really much a relationship building piece between us as service providers and the harm reduction uh, people's service users mm -hmm. that seems to be at the core of it. So if it's in a space where they feel safe, where they trust the people providing the service, you can get much better results. Of course. Thank you so much. It seems like you are truly sort of embodying that aspect of co-producing, co-working with these communities rather than doing something simply for them. That's right. And that seems incredibly important. And I'm wondering, um, you spoke a little bit about the opioid crisis and how, you know, um, you've been, this work has been going on for 30 plus years, however the opioids crisis seems to have exacerbated sort of the challenges you may have to experience. So um, what are some of the current gaps that you think exist in terms of Hamilton's response um, to the opioid crisis that you've observed in the community? I think generally um, across the board, you know, there's, there, we need more services um, related to um, the population that's using that are using substances and experiencing health issues because of it so uh, that you know runs this the gamut from harm reduction to treatment and, mm -hmm. and everything in between so uh, for our part of it which is mostly around harm reduction but we also sit at the tables um, with the city and the province that talk about treatment and other options mm -hmm. too because we, we feel we have a role there to, mm -hmm. to play as well too so in terms of harm reduction um, we are you know we're finally seeing more services come into place they're not um, ideal, but they're, they're, they're getting better. So we're seeing improvements. And obviously one of the, the main ones would be a, um, a safe consumption site. So that's been in development now for a couple of years with the province and is finally now underway. Um, and was getting underway and then we had change of government and there was a bit of a pause. But mm -hmm. uh, so for Hamilton specifically, you know, we have an overdose prevention site. It's, it's in place, it's, it's temporary. So we're now working with the other providers and partners. We're a partner with the opioid prevention site because we provide 
uh, our staff, like Lisa and another staff person over there, three shifts a week. So, and that's at our cost. So we're not doesn't cost mm -hmm. them anything. Uh, that's our in kind contribution. But um, we are now looking at what will be a permanent uh, safe consumption site. So there's a group of people getting together to uh, who are currently involved uh, to see um, how that will look. We want it to be the best it can be um, um, in terms of providing a hub for, for people who use substances and service providers and other services. So mm -hmm. we feel we feel our own location actually can provide some of that, a good deal of it, but there's other locations too. We have, we have to work on um, our landlord. This has been the issue with, with all of the provision of services where there's a huge gap, and that is we, we are kind of left to um, having to make our case with landlords and they can refuse us if they wish, if they don't want that kind of service there. So what, what an option might be if we can't find an adequate site is that there might have to be some intervention from the city right. or another level of government to acquire a space basically mm -hmm. because we don't have time to really wait much longer. We've waited long enough. So. Of course. And we have an OPS that's currently running but it's yes. not ideal. Yes, not ideal. And so you've spoken about a few different things and so I want to unpack maybe mm. at least starting with the idea of um, the AIDS network is part of a larger infrastructure of other key stakeholders of the space, the city, other organizations. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how and the AIDS network sits and interacts in the context of these other players in Hamilton, what you guys see um, and how you partner with these organizations to achieve this collective goal of harm reduction. So really, it, it, it's about um, uh, you know, sitting, sitting down together, looking at what the, the problems are and the issues and coming up with whatever solutions we can bring to the table mm -hmm. um, to help help deal with it. So we have a very good group, I believe, of providers and uh, especially some physicians who are mm -hmm. part of the Shelter Health Network who have been uh, fantastic uh, partners who really know the population, care very much about them and are working really hard to uh, at their own, again, basically as volunteers so far. So that uh, issue, I think, needs to be addressed at, you know, at a lot of the different levels is that um, we have to make sure there's adequate funding in place to provide the services on top of what we're already doing. So there's the physicians, there's public health, uh, the nurses and the harm reduction uh, staff they have mm -hmm. um, who are very important partners as well with us. And they have been for a long time in the provision of the services that I talked about. So the uh, needle exchange on site and the van, those are a uh, close partnership with the city of Hamilton. So to ensure those services are, are provided, they, they provide the funding. So that's a very important one. They also um, will help us deliver the services at different points. So maybe six times a month or more, there might be a, a public health nurse on the shift with mm -hmm. us when we're doing the van. So um, that's been programming that's been going for quite some time. And then um, other service organizations like uh, Good Shepherd or organizations that deal with um, poverty and um, homelessness. So there's, there's the Good Shepherd, I'll name the Southern Westlake Ministries, mm -hmm. um, some key providers of services in Hamilton that are part of that as well too. And the, their services can, or their contributions run everything from just like we are providing perhaps staffing or outreach to support the population uh, mm -hmm. while the OPS is open or uh, space provision impossible to and all of us have looked at trying to configure our space to do it and we're all running up against problems with our landlords so so we're kind of at that spot um, mm -hmm. where we have to take another run at it and hopefully we can get something accomplished in the next few months. Great and so thank you for sort of that 
overview of the different players and how you interact with them and sort of just to build on so some of the gaps you've identified include um, you know this need for a permanent site however running up some challenges around the space um, you've also spoke about sort of need for more funding um, or a, lot, a, lot, a lack of sort of support perhaps from different levels of government when there's been change of government and I'm wondering if there are any other resources that you and these organizations really need to fill this gap beyond the landlord situation and beyond the perhaps the funding um, I think uh, just a general sort of uh, awareness of the other with other healthcare providers so hospitals mm -hmm. working with them and we are doing that with the Hamilton drug strategy that's in place right now and uh, I'm a member of that and a lot of organizations are so everybody's working very hard there to make sure we have a coordinated strategy and that we have uh, things in place along the, the spectrum so the pillars you know are mm -hmm. prevention harm reduction treatment and uh, justice social mm -hmm. justice um, so it's really I guess uh, building more awareness uh, among service providers of how yes. to work with the population who are yes. using substances and that's uh, where we see uh, still see a lot of gaps and, and issues mm. that we have to work on and that relates to sort of the attitude of generally of the, of the population mm. of the society towards people who use substances yes. so yes and that directly ties into sort of asking about you know what are some of those like you spoke about, you know, there are some challenges around needing knowledge and understanding of the population. So what would you say are some common myths around drug use and sort of the repercussions of these misconceptions? Mm -hmm. So even uh, the way I describe it as a service provider is a bit um, problematic because I describe about a, a population as if it's an abstract group. Yes. That it's an othering kind of concept mm -hmm. when it's actually us. It's the community here. Right. Um, everybody's affected by by this issue. Um, anybody who has to use substances, whether it's prescribed or illicit, is a, is affected. And what's happened in this case is it starts in many cases with prescribed and then moves over to to illicit mm -hmm. use. So um, it's really been um, part of just a general, uh, as I said, like awareness building. But when the myths the myths are that that's somebody else, that's not me or not my family, that that mm -hmm. person chose this situation. Mm -hmm. What that does is then that just um, isolates and, and uh, diminishes people and uh, kind of pushes them further out of the um, the mainstream, right. more into um, mm -hmm. um, you know an underserved or um, marginalized population. That's the word I was looking for, <laughs> and uh, therefore are now uh, really struggling to to have access to the system, or the system doesn't really uh, provide adequate access to them because they uh, are experiencing barriers when they get there or they're not comfortable in that space. Uh, if there's a fear of, uh, of um, criminalization involved, then that's another element that would make someone not want to access a traditional health service. So the, that those, those myths have been just been compounding and um, they are still a big source of stigma, which we deal with in our community, in HIV's community, for years and years, still do, still deal with it, and um, that one is just another another level of uh, or layer of stigma that gets compounded on the population. It just drives people away from services. So when that happens, you have people not coming forward for for testing for other HIV or Hep C. Therefore, they could be living with it and not know it, and not getting uh, the treatment that they need uh, as soon as possible. So then we will the effects of that are, are sicker population coming in 
and um, and then the population that um, is also using two is now compounded by um, not really getting the health services they need because they just don't feel that there's a, a receptive kind of mm-hmm. uh, place for them to go so their use may continue and then they may die because of the use because of the supply yeah, yeah. and the that's the reality supply. of it is mm-hmm. that people are passing away in incredible numbers, numbers yeah. and it is frightening mm-hmm. um, and sort of to build on that um, I know that you guys are doing some great work about even tackling these myths. So you spoke briefly earlier about the needle exchange programs, but also specifically this idea of a van and how it's a mobile van. So instead of expecting patients or people who use drugs to come to you, you're going to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that van model and in, and in what ways does that help address some of these challenges around stigma and the landlord issue and, and how that's such an that that service plays into it right mm-hmm. so it's an important part of the programming uh, we do and we've been doing it for quite a long time now before even the crisis started but it, it does play directly into what i just talked about the myths and the stereotypes mm-hmm. and stigma because that van goes all over the city of hamilton it doesn't just go to mm-hmm. the inner city or to places where people using substances might hang out or what people call a drug den or those kinds of places mm-hmm. this will go out to the suburbs to people living in homes yeah. in Dundas and Caster um, Flamborough I'll name you know all the suburbs it mm-hmm. goes there because we know we go there because we get the calls uh, to go there so we're you know we're distributing a variety of, uh, of equipment for people so that means there are people who do have resources who are using drugs because mm-hmm. they have the resources to, to buy buy substances so uh, so safer use is, is obviously much better. The challenges with that is we only have one van and we can't get to all the calls every yes. night. Okay. So we start at 7 and they end at 11 and by the, usually at the end of every shift there's several or more calls that they just couldn't get to because there's only one van. So I mean there's an obvious resource issue there. If we could get two or three more we mm-hmm. could cover large smaller sections of the city. We could mm-hmm. say cover West, West End, West mm-hmm. End. Um, and um, therefore, uh, we could put other services on the van besides just uh, the distribution of harm reduction supplies. We could bring in public health nurses to do more care, like uh, back, uh, vaccines and wound care is a big issue with people using um, injection drugs. Mm-hmm. So we could enhance the kind of health care we're providing um, by making it more of a mobile service. And even possibly if that uh, worked, uh, su- was successful, we could then see is there a, a way to do safe consumption also on a mobile right. site there has been one there's one set of Montreal that we're studying um, in West Urban Ministries took the lead on that when they actually have a, a, stu- a student um, working on that that proposal so uh, I'm not sure what's happened with it but again it's just looking at another model that that mm-hmm. can be provided and so that you know that does take resources but um, you know, it's a combination of where do we, you know, do we look at public resources for that from the public sector, or um, you know, will, will, will this new government provide any more be, than what they've said they would? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll be dealing with those issues, and there may be an issue where we've started to talk to people now too, like when it, which came out of the landlord issue, where we started identifying individuals who actually wanted to support in a philanthropic way uh, this work. So that's even more exciting so the fact that someone would make a donation um, to support whether it's an infrastructure or a van or something like that um, would be great so that's another way of building up the resources to to um, 
to provide services perhaps quicker than 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 uh, mm -hmm. like sooner than later. And 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 sort of just briefly touching on this idea of you now getting interest from the community in philanthropy. I, I guess I'm wondering if you can speak to sort of like the public or the community support or barriers that have existed in, in sort of your um, programming considering I think in order to get a permanent supervised consumption site you do need to demonstrate that the community feels comfortable mm -hmm. with having this sort of intervention. Yeah. And that, that is a process that unfortunately we didn't have the luxury of time with when the government announced, the, uh, the previous government announced the provision of overdose uh, prevention sites, the funding from the province in addition to the federal you know, mm -hmm. pieces, which is the, um, the uh, exemption of, yes. the, of the space for the, the uh, provision of, of drugs on, on the site. So that all happened so quickly, we didn't have time to really in our own case, organize and meet first meet with our landlords, have the partners with us, explain what it was going to be. And we did start that with our, our individual on-site property manager, and he actually reacted quite fine because he already knows us, knows mm -hmm. the population that has been coming already. So it wouldn't be necessarily new. Yeah. It just would be a different service, an extension mm -hmm. of what we provided. But um, unfortunately, uh, some, like, when something like that happens, it gets leaked into the media, and then before we know it, the actual owner of the property is reading it in the paper. So, yeah. so that just mm. is just not helpful because now they've already got their backs up, and then they'll they'll get reactions from the other tenants in the building. In our case, it's office tenants, so like lawyers and, mm -hmm. and accountants. But again, all that could have been addressed with just some uh, some some basic sort of uh, education, maybe question and answer periods, maybe forums, and what would come out. What we'd like to be able to tell them is by having such a service on the site, you're actually improving. These, the conditions because you won't have people trying to use right outside our doors right. or in hallways or, or stairwells which is the case now because in, in a sense when you, and I learned this from other conferences and I've been to uh, lately it's kind of a obvious when you think about it it's not really fair to provide harm reduction supplies to people and then say no go somewhere else and use them they really need to use them right away and um, providing on-site use then does Take care of that obviously it also takes care of any um, litter associated so the needles the anything discarded will stay within the site instead of being spread out on the you know on the streets outside of the, the location and then that that even greater um, benefit of having someone be there for a while uh, stay in the space even chill out and then um, they might think about interacting with someone else or asking for some other help so anything that that kind of helps um, enhance our time with people mm -hmm. um, using substances is a really great benefit. Great. Thank you for that level of detail. Um, um, I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to, uh, we've spoken a lot about this permanent consumption site, mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, sort of, we've addressed the roles of these different organizations, the need perhaps for the permanent consumption site, and some of the barriers. And so there's a lot of moving pieces. And I guess one of the pieces as well are the health professionals um, and perhaps the emerging health professionals who are learning about the opioid crisis, who are learning about overprescription, and wondering, you know, what can they do? What what what, are, what is their role to play? How can they reduce stigma? 
And so I want to wrap up on this idea of what are some things that you think specifically medical professionals or student advocates need to do in order to support these harm reduction initiatives. Well, I think learn as much as possible uh, uh, about what's going on in the community, what kind of programming is there. Listen to people who use substances and you'll learn more about their needs and what, what works for them and um, go back to like meeting people where they're at so that um, you, you will learn more from what they need at that moment rather than what you think they're going to need in another five minutes or, or an hour or whatever that might be. Uh, or days and weeks and months ahead, uh, so it's really just in the, the intervention of that at that time. And um, I think um, just to help uh, out, uh, think about ways, uh, is there a space that could be provided either on any services that are currently in, in place that might make uh, that space more accessible and more comfortable for people who use substances? doesn't mean you have to provide an on-site using Mm -hmm. site but you could at least your space uh, if they're waiting for treatment or waiting for to see somebody uh, just learn a bit more about um, what might be needed uh, in, in that case or um, how they can be connected better connected to other other services and so have knowledge of what those services are for sure there's a lot of learning that needs to happen and I'm wondering if from the practical perspective if you have any recommendations or advice um, that students should perhaps be um, sort of taking in and advocating for, like, should we be talking to the MPs? Should we be talking to the government? In what ways um, would you recommend sort of this work happen? Mm -hmm. I think uh, in terms of advocacy on a, on a, like on a larger level, mm -hmm. uh, continuing to make sure that uh, these services are provided because they're saving lives. So if you, if you reduce mm -hmm. it to that, level, that it's simply a life-saving um, mm -hmm. provision, this is what has to be done, and just to continue to advocate for that, at the very least, um, that is a big step, because it will at least stem the tide, uh, the deaths, and try to roll back at least, um, and have more people uh, involved um, in the care people, and of course, uh, before I forget, to the very important provision of naloxone. Yes. Um, to people, and that can be very much a very practical thing that can be done right across the board, mm -hmm. across the community. All of you could have naloxone kits in yes. your work, um, and um, it'll turn out to be a very important piece of equipment mm -hmm. for you because it will save lives. So in the case of our, uh, we've had two overdoses in our setting. We actually had two students involved, too, who were doing placements, and they, they participated in the, um, the bringing back of the person, basically, and the success story. And so that's what we see. Um, you know, this maybe I didn't already pretty positive. We see this at the OPS as we see it everywhere now that these prevention, interve the interventions that have saved people's lives, whether it's because of the site itself or the naloxone provision, has literally brought people back. Yeah, so at the end of the day, it's not dramatic at all to say that this is about, again, it's not about a population. It's about people in our communities, our family members, people we know about and care about. Um, who are suffering mm -hmm. and we as, as organizations as individuals have responsibilities to sort of step up and try to contribute to that and I want to thank you so much for all the work that your organization does um, to provide harm reduction to be life-saving and we hope um, to advocate and continue to voice these concerns so that people in power recognize that and do more to make this work happen thank you You're welcome thank you 
That's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We envision a future without stigma for substance use.